Global Capital Podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Global Capital Podcast. I'm Ralph Sinclair, and I'm the editor of Global Capital. And I'm John Hay, the Corporate Finance and Sustainability Editor. And this week, we're turning our attention back to everyone's favourite topic, sustainable finance. It's a topic we cover in great depth and breadth at GC. So if you want to read more about it, from the latest entrance into the ESG bond market to the controversies around brown companies doing green finance, to what we'll be talking about today, please go to globalcapital.com. John, I was intrigued by a piece our colleague Hannah Buttle wrote this week about private equity companies needing to take responsibility for the social consequences of their activities. And it got me thinking about how much responsibility those in capital markets should bear for the climate, society and everything else that lies outside of generating financial returns. Yes, I think we're going to have an interesting discussion about this, um, as we'll discover shortly, because private equity is really at the sharp end of generating financial returns. But it's definitely the case that there's been a change in capital markets and the whole financial sector in the last few years. The shift towards being aware of the social impact and the environmental impact of investing in all its forms has been tremendous. And I think one thing worth highlighting is the concept of impact, um, which you hear increasingly nowadays. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? This is uh, private equity in particular. It's an industry with a reputation uh, for asset stripping, uh, causing unemployment, misery and um, at the the, uh, benefit of self-enrichment. And yet now this is uh, an industry that's screening for ESG criteria and uh, apparently genuinely considering the, the impact that they have. Yes, I think those in the private equity industry would defend themselves against the charge of being ruthless asset strippers and would would argue that they create value in the economy and are are responsible owners. And there are certainly two sides to that complicated question. But this point about impact is important because this is really a new way of thinking about capital markets, or in fact, it's an old one, which really just boils down to ethics. When people talk about impact, they mean thinking about the effects of the way they invest on the environment and society. And it's not just thinking about environmental and social factors and whether they're going to impact one's own financial return. Well, we spoke to Hannah, who is our corporate debt reporter, about the piece and the wider implications. And we discovered there was an awful lot to think about. Hi, Hannah. Thanks for joining us. Um, Can you start by summarising for us what you wrote about this week and why it is you feel that way? Hi, great to be here. So essentially, I was talking about how private equity firms have considered sort of environmental and governance factors, so the E and G um, of ESG quite heavily. But the S in ESG, so the social impact of their activities, is one that seems to be a bit harder to measure or one that may be, as I think we'll discuss, antithetical to the operations of private equity. So why do you think social impact is antithetical to private equity, Hannah? So it sort of depends how you define a social impact. So it's quite a broad definition. So it can include sort of managing relationships with workforce, broader society, the political environment, but also supply chains and 
surges in sort of opinion as well. So it's hard to define what the social impact is, I think, first of all. And that can include relationships with workforce, society in which it operates, and also sort of political supply chains. So essentially, the model of private equity is around sort of turning firms around quite quickly to generate higher returns. So the ways that they do that include reducing the cost of capital by taking on more debt, improving management and reducing business costs. And that last one generally includes either laying off staff or reducing benefits. And that is probably the most contentious part of the private equity model and potentially the one that can come into conflict with the S in ESG. Now, we have a good example of that, don't we? There's uh, the the sorry tale of Toys R Us. Um, Can you tell us what happened there? Sure. So Toys R Us, a very well-known and sort of iconic toy shop, um, was acquired in 2005 by KKR & Co, Bain Capital and Vornado Realty Trust. And it was liquidated 12 years later, having collapsed under the weight of its own debt. And that resulted in the loss of more than 30,000 jobs. So that is sort of pointed to as an example of the way that the private equity model can come into conflict with social goals. Yeah, no, I mean, I guess, I guess from, uh, well, I guess you could argue there's less brightly coloured plastic in the world, but uh, certainly no consolation to the, to the staff that found themselves uh, out of jobs. And uh, would it be fair to say that a lot of those would be retail staff and that there's not necessarily, uh, you know, this is not necessarily a high paid, well skilled, well resourced labour force that will naturally fall into other jobs or has, has a big survival margin to, to wait until they find their next job? I think that Toys R Us is a, is a good example of what can happen with private equity. But you've also got to remember that that was the time of the rise of Amazon and the and retailing, big box retailing of that kind, you know, has in general suffered. So I think it, it, the underlying trend of people moving to shopping online is probably more to do with it. Yeah, I think there's two points to be made here. Firstly, if we are to sort of live in a capitalist society where businesses rise and fall, we do to a certain degree accept that at some point there will be some businesses closing down and that that loss of business can result in a loss of jobs. I think that is one point to be made there. But the second point is that unemployment does have consequences both on an individual and a societal level. And the consequences of those loss of jobs could be seen as the responsibility of the firm that owns the company, but also other stakeholders as well, like governments. And that's something I think we'll get to discuss as well. Well, what are what are private comp- equity companies doing then? To uh, I mean, they they've obviously jumped on the uh, ESG bandwagon like everyone else has in finance. So, so, what is it that they are doing at the moment? So a lot of private equity firms are now screening the companies that they invest in to see whether they meet certain standards on ESG. We actually saw, I think earlier this week, CDP, a non-profit disclosure agency, is going to start working with private companies to allow smaller businesses to disclose their environmental impacts to the private equity firms that own them. So there has been some progress made, but these uh, tend to be mostly related to the environmental side rather than the social side. I think on issues like workforce diversity and board diversity, the private equity firms are also quite keenly engaged. 
And we've seen them use instruments like sustainability-linked loans, which are loans where the interest rate is tied to achieving sustainability targets to highlight their progress on issues like board diversity at the companies they own. But I think you're right that underlying all this is the much more fundamental question about, you know, is it compatible uh, to think about the social impact of a business and to lay off staff if you think it's going to make it more profitable? Yeah, I think this point... um... Well, firstly, I just wanted to say about the uh, the board targets. I mean, that's a very popular uh, ESG metric for uh, companies to aspire to. I always think that's a bit of a bit of a cop out in a sense that it's very easy to achieve those metrics because boards are small and one hire can uh, radically alter the statistics. Um, it's not, not to say that it's not important, um, but I I think it's a lot easier to change that than to sort of change. A statistic over a whole workforce. I suppose the other thing that I, I think about this is I wonder where, you know, just how much can we really expect of finance people in the finance industry in terms of achieving this change? That is to say, where do their responsibilities, where should they end? Um, you know, if we just think about the uh, example of laying off staff, just where uh, there are two arguments, aren't there? The company that the private equity company buys is presumably not running at its best. Let's say it might even be struggling and in trouble. You might find uh, that it's necessary, therefore, to lay off staff. And by doing that, you end up creating more jobs in future and saving many other jobs rather than letting the company go to the wall. So I guess there's a balance to be struck there, isn't there, between just how much uh, responsibility a private equity owner has to, to workers that it might might lay off and how much responsibility the rest of society bears to those workers. Yeah, definitely. And I think it's important to point out here that there have been several economic studies that haven't found a difference in terms of layoffs between companies owned by private equity and companies owned by other stakeholders. So it's not necessarily a private equity problem, redundancy. That being said, we do see some evidence that there is a reduction in worker compensation and worker benefits. So companies that are taken over by private equity firms, especially lower skilled employees in these companies, tend to report a change in compensation after the takeover. So it's so in terms of the responsibility, I think if you ask private equity firms what their sort of main remit is, and that is generating returns for shareholders, the evidence is that they do that pretty well and that they turn around companies pretty well. So companies taken over by private equity become more efficient and more profitable. Uh, various economic studies have demonstrated. In terms of the sort of broader responsibility, there is perhaps the option to offer better severance payouts, some help with transition to staff that are made redundant. However, I'm not sure how much a package like that would sort of add to their social metrics if there is a high profile layoff, uh, but a company has a really great redundancy package. I don't think that those things would necessarily cancel each other out. That's a very interesting point, Hannah, because you've highlighted something that could actually have a very positive social effect, which is helping people through redundancy in the most 
constructive and and sort of generous way however it's unlikely that any company is going to want to particularly highlight that because it just doesn't look good so there's an interesting contrast between what can actually be most socially valuable and what people like talking about yeah it's a hard one isn't it because from a private equity owner's point of view that is something like you say that you're not going to get any benefits from crowing about but is effectively and if we look at it ruthlessly dead money in the, in terms of your investment in the business you're you know you're sort of you're increasing your costs when you should be reducing them uh, it's a very hard nosed way to look at it but it's um let's be honest it's a hard nosed hard nosed business um but yeah. i wonder you know i was wondering this morning shouldn't perhaps um a better approach be for all business owners to sort of take a almost like take a Hippocratic oath and um, sort of do no harm first when it when it when it comes to these things that way you can accept accept uh, redundancies but you are still considering the uh, the broader impact of um, what it is you're doing on uh, not just the the people that might be laid off but um, wider society. I think culturally that's something that the COVID-19 pandemic might well have shifted because there has been such an unprecedented level of government support for companies. So if you flip that around as companies recover, we might expect them to show a bit more awareness and a bit more sensitivity to something that's maybe beyond the remit of just making profit profits for the company itself. So I think the territory we're getting into is the question of whether businesses and their investors should be responsible for you know really fundamental social questions such as what what happens when redundancies are made you know how easy is it to make people redundant and that sort of thing and you know what levels of pay should be and there's an argument that this is the purview of politics right and that and that you know it politicians are there to make laws that govern these things and you know I have some sympathy with businesses who might say, well, yeah, politicians should do that. We'll follow the law um, and, you know, do you leave it to us to make profits. But I think one interesting aspect to think about is how these laws are actually very different in different countries. If you think about Scandinavia, France, the UK, Germany, Italy, they all have very different social models. So and the private equity firms operate and do deals across all of those countries. So so they can obviously succeed in making money in all those markets. And it's interesting to think about whether they can use that cross-border experience to choose the optimal social models to deploy and how they run their businesses. All right, I suppose what that, what that tells me is that they will uh, abide to the rules in each jurisdiction. I, I wouldn't expect the company to hamper its performance its financial performance in uh one jurisdiction by adhering to the rules of another but that's what i'm um, saying is is the you know that is sort of what the investor community is now asking people to do by mm. the, the whole esg movement is saying you need to do not just what the law requires you need to go beyond that and sort of you know make extra effort to be socially responsible it's just that nobody's quite defined yet what what the actual expectations are well actually one thing that hannah mentioned in her article was about uh executive pay as a ratio of uh, or as a multiple of staff pay yeah that's been a big a big topic um over the last well probably 
I, I guess, decade or longer. Um, and that strikes me as something where private equity owner, where it would be in their financial interests and in their, I guess, ESG interests and to manage, and they can manage it because ultimately they are the employer. They are the person that picks picks the manager of that staff. Um, I was always uh, got quite seduced by uh, the thing uh, Warren Buffett said that uh, he tries to invest in businesses that an idiot can run because one day an idiot will, which suggests that if the business is good enough, you know, you don't you don't really rely on superstar talent to um, you know do do much with it other than to be competent. So. I wonder ultimately if that isn't an area where private equity firms could have some impact and uh, impose fixed multiples for executive pay and that that sort of thing. So my my instinct is yes and no. Um, in terms of your competitors, I think that's the most important thing for these firms to consider. So if all of the firm's competitors said, I mean, this seems really unlikely, but say if they said they woke up one day and they said CEO pay cannot be more than 10 times the pay of the lowest pay worker in the company, then I think that would have a real effect. If only one firm decides to implement this across its portfolio, firstly, we don't know sort of how much control they have over the different companies. Secondly, they could well be moved on to another firm that wouldn't necessarily put those restrictions in place and could attract more talent because there is some evidence that having a superstar CEO can do wonders for your share price even though those salaries to us may look completely out of whack. So I think without your competitors sort of making a decision or sort of a group of firms making a decision, I think it's hard to see how a firm can justify that hit to their returns. Well, I suppose I, I suppose what I, what I was thinking was that overall uh, executive pay uh, is a, a much more manageable part of the overall cost base than staffing in general. Obviously, it means you don't have such a great impact from, you know, you don't save that much by trimming it down. But the, uh, the, the, at least the message it sends out, I suppose, um, is better. And of course, I guess, you know, private equities aren't all powerful in this in the sense that they take money from asset managers and investment vehicles and whatever else. Um, who, as we know, are now setting quite stringent criteria for how their their money is invested. So, you know, they have some power of persuasion here too. So going back to what John said, I think it's also really important to highlight that there's a real cultural difference in how we defined the social implications of a company. So, for example, Walmart has become a more palatable choice for socially minded investors after it announced it would restrict the types of firearm ammunition that it sells and so to us in the UK that might be quite bemusing as a sort of social target and it quite quite hard for us to put into context as well and I think that really highlights how difficult it will be to have any kind of unified standard as to what represents a social company and what represents a company that isn't fulfilling its social mm. remit. Absolutely. And I think that, that that's what I was trying to get at with what I talked about, the different social models. But you're, you're right to say it's cultural and not just legal. But, you know, this is why I think there's, you know, have a lot of sympathy for the view that this is a political thing. And asking companies and investors to start deciding what is socially just 
is 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 quite a difficult area and it's certainly the idea of harmonization or standards that that are you know cross uh, you know international it seems seems quite remote i think well not to mention the fact that the the you know it's very hard to it's harder to reach a more specific standard and yet at the same time the more general you make your standards uh the less useful they are perhaps and and as you say they're not necessarily applicable across the board of course there there are it's important to say that there are exceptions to to what i was just saying and that when you think about human rights um there there's sort of general agreement on what human rights are and you know things like slavery child labor you know really exploitative working conditions poor health and safety these are all you know very real issues that go on in the supply chains of companies and you know i've even heard the argument that every single company in the western world has some slavery in its supply chain um and and you know these are areas where there are common agreed international standards and and it's just the enforcement that, that that is poor and i think the investment world has a huge amount to do there to to improve the enforcement of this um and and that certainly isn't just a private equity thing it's very much uh, public markets as well um but but the other thing on standards of course is that people are trying to create international standards of social justice for financial markets and the primary example is the eu uh, which is now developing a social taxonomy um and you know they're they're exactly taking this bull by the horns going back to the point about unified targets and standards i think it's fair to say that some kind of agreed upon principles is better than none and as you say the eu taxonomy is a great point towards that um i think on the topic of agreed upon targets, I'd really like to point out what Seema Kamorier told a panel at our SRI conference last week. So she's a senior policy advisor at E3G, and she was saying that essentially imperfect targets are better than no targets at all. Because if we don't decide on social goals, on the sort of society that we want to live in, then who will? Well, thank you to John and Hannah for joining me and to Gerald Hayes, our producer, for editing this podcast. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe. It's free and there's a new episode out every Friday afternoon and we publish that to all the major platforms. So if you just search for Global Capital on any of them, you'll find us there. Don't forget also to leave a glowing five-star review, uh, which will help other people find the podcast who might find it interesting. As Hannah mentioned at the end of the discussion, we held our own SRI conference this week and you can find all of the panel discussions and uh, coverage of that event up on the Global Capital website. So do go and have a look if you're interested. Also, don't forget to drop us a line if you have any comments, complaints or effusive praise to send our way. Uh, The email for that is podcast at globalcapital.com. We'd love to hear from you. In the meantime, Until next week, thank you very much for listening and goodbye.